Hey there, Sean. Hey, Pierce. How's it going? It's pretty okay. All right. That means it's time for another episode of the It's Pretty Okay podcast. Let's do it. Let's start the show. Shuffled up 6th Street in the rain. Kept my head down as I looked past the people. And in the department store, I found what I was looking for. This is the church. This is the crucible. All right. They come so... out to Broadway and they look for me. We have, in in different ways, both sort of as the actual topic and and sort of in in reference when we've been talking about other things, we've talked a fair amount on this show over nearly eight years now about fandom and what it means to be a, a fanatic, because that is what fan is short for um and i i happened upon you know uh, well i i think what it means to be a fan has changed a lot in the last you know i mean even since we started doing this but really over the last 15 to 20 ish years and um in the last couple days, I've happened upon a bunch of different things that all sort of tied into it in, in a way that I thought was pretty interesting. So um, it started, <clears throat> excuse me, it started for me um, with a, a series of Instagram stories from the uh, the culture critic Hanif Abdurraqib uh, about Drake and and a fairly elaborate shopping metaphor for fandom and i i like you know he he's a guy whose opinions i i sort of value and respect and and it was all sort of a a trenchant analysis and then i wondered why it, why is any of this coming across my social feeds and then i i sort of figured out that uh Yasin Bey, who you may know as Most Deaf, uh, gave some sort of interview uh, in which he was asked if Drake was real hip hop. Um, and he sort of ducked answering that question and instead said that what uh, what Drake's music reminded him of was going to Target um, and, and commerce and capitalism, basically. And so... <clears throat> in that in that light this this sort of shopping metaphor of fandom became really interesting to me uh, Hanif uh, I, I'm not gonna read the whole thing because it's a couple hundred words but basically what he's putting forth is the idea that fandom has become an identity thing in a way that it we really wasn't necessarily all the time and and it's sort of replaced fandom that's based on consumption of an artist's work and <clears throat> and so the shopping metaphor is as he puts it 
let's say you go to a store all the time, first for necessities, the things you know for sure that you need, and the store has it. Uh, but then once it becomes habit, you sometimes go to the store just to go, thinking, I'll figure out what I need when I get there. And then the store uh, stops having pretty much anything you need altogether, but you say, well, it's my store. I'll go and find something I need. The things you need, want, or even like are now actually governed by the store itself. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, th there have been uh, roughly a gazillion takes floating around podcasts and the internet lately about how the internet isn't fun anymore. Um, and, and so this all sort of hit me in the same place. There's like, yeah, I, you know, I spend an inordinate amount of time just like scrolling through reels on Instagram and watching videos that their algorithm has decided to give me rather than spending time seeking out things that I like and and liking them because I am like making an active commitment to like a thing as opposed to just, you know, sort of identifying myself based on my data and saying, well, in the past I have liked X, Y, and Z things. And so I am a person who likes those things. Am I going crazy? I'm, pro I'm, I'm probably going crazy anyway, but am I going crazy? I, so I've been, you know, as you were kind of introducing us to the current trends, I started writing down, okay, what, what was it like back in the day? What was it like if you were a fan of, of Black Flag or Iggy Pop? Or, or anything like that, or, or even more recent, if you were a fan of, of The Strokes um, in the early 2000s. And really, I'm thinking of books there. Um, and I'm also thinking of scenes. And, and I think this, um, I think there's this longstanding idea of who you listen to says a lot about who you are. And you know, if you're someone who listened to the Ramones or, or you were in that scene, like it, it, it said a lot about you. You might dress a certain way. You might adopt an ethos. Certainly the same thing with Black Flag. And I'm, I'm giving examples of, again, of, of these books, books I've read because I think that they're really strong. Kevin, I, you, you were telling us before that you've been listening to a lot of Metallica of late. And even if the way they approach this, how, how Sean's kind of laying it out with, with certain artists even though it's a bit different, it says a lot about you if you listen to Metallica and, and if you express that. But one thing that I think is different is that, and these are coming back a little bit, but the way fandom worked then is the, the content stream, if you will, of like support and, and excitement around these bands was kind of created by the 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 fans who listened or, or consumed and everything um who who supported the band as a brand the musician as a brand um and while that i think still exists today i'm sh maybe there are still fan clubs for for artists i don't know but i think increasingly 
and much has been written some by the the person that you jack hamilton at uva mm-hmm. is i think increasingly you have these artists um and i'm hesitant to pick on some but there are good examples we can get into these artists own own the content streams now they do fewer and fewer interviews and they own those streams so instead of having a zine for for drake or travis scott or i, I don't know wilco like they just release the stuff themselves. And so you are hooked into their feed, their IV. And that's where it says a lot about you to be a be that brand. But I think it's all kind of mainlined into you from one source. And there's a lack of criticality. And that's where, to me, it gets to, it's less important about what they are producing and more that they are constantly reminding you what it is to be a fan of them. Yeah, and and so this there one the the link the the part that I left out of the shopping metaphor is that the link to Drake specifically as context is that he he must have some some new material out and uh and it's been praised for like you know he he's really committed to to rapping well. And and Hanif's take was, no, that's really not the case. Drake has just been a kind of lazy artist in a certain way for a long time now and hasn't put out, you know, hasn't like had to sort of challenge himself and improve the quality of his craft in many years because he has this dedicated audience that is dedicated to him because they are Drake fans rather than because he is continuing to put out like good and acclaimed work. And so Drake is the store that is now able to dictate what you want, you know, quote unquote want and and is not really required to keep sort of iterating and, and, doing better in the same way that an up and coming artist is maybe required to. And that's not like, I think that that's, you know, that's certainly informed by like how he feels about Drake as an artist. And that's where I kind of challenge like the idea of no selling out. Like what, what is the incentive? I I don't know anything about Drake, but what would be the, the incentive on Drake's part as an artist to do that, to effectively just phone it in. Like that, that sounds more like the, the record label and the, the capitalism behind it saying, Hey, we've got a brand that is giving us money. Let's not mess with success. Oh, yes. That that almost sounds like it is selling out to me, but, but so I don't, I don't don't know whether you would like, I don't know. I mean, I think by almost any definition of selling out, Drake has sold out. But I'm not really talking – I don't think I'm talking about, like, whether or not artists sell out. I'm not I'm not so much thinking about the artists – like, decisions that the artists are making themselves. I'm thinking more about, like, this kind of system as a whole. And so you – what you have described, Max, is algorithms. Algorithms take in inputs and – you know, your your YouTube recommendation algorithm says it is purely it's past looking. It's what have you watched before? 
can we give you more of that? There's well, purely is not the right word. There's a little bit of other people who watch the things that you've watched also like these things. But, you know, the, and this this is also kind of this is the focus of an episode of the Ezra Klein show, uh, the New York Times podcast that I was listening to last night <clears throat> with uh, a guy named Kyle Chaka, who writes for The New Yorker and just recently put out a book called Filter World about how this sort of age of algorithmic curation has really changed how we all sort of take in not just entertainment, but like the whole world around us. Uh, And so like that, to me, like that's the thing that I'm responding to in this is like Drake, Drake doesn't have any incentive really to like push himself as an artist because he's got a certain baseline of support that is going to continue feeding a system that, that bills Drake as a top artist. Mm -hmm. And so, so he gets away with, you know, having sort of a, he's the, you know, he's the unrefined political candidate who gets graded on a curve in a debate because we have really low expectations for what he's going to do. And so if he puts forth a little effort, you know, people, people who are inclined to say that they are Drake fans will give him sort of extra benefit of the doubt. I I don't, I don't want to get into a debate of the artistic credentials of Drake other than to say that he has, he deserves higher expectations given past work, but that's not, that's not what we're here to discuss. We're, 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 we're not having a Drake <laughs> conversation for many reasons, but what I do want to point out and is, you know, Kevin, to, to, I want to make my point And then, uh, so Max, you asked about selling out. I asked about selling out kind of before coming into this. So selling out normally the idea is, Someone has this artistic ethos and it's developed. And then at some point influences record companies to make them more broadly palatable. Say, hey, can you change up your sound? Can you change the way you do music? And and bands get up in arms because they've sold out so that they can sell better. They've sold out in that they've changed their sound to appeal to more people they've been influenced to do that and people get mad but then they have more fans whatever so that's that's the framework for selling out a lot um and a lot of power in there is in the content they produce um specific to music and the influence of record companies so i think of metallica and i think of how are they making all their music how have they historically made all their music probably in record sales and tours how, where does where where does the bulk of money for people like Rihanna and Drake and probably Travis Scott come from? I don't think it's from strictly their record sales anywhere. I'm sure they make a ton of money. Maybe that's a great example, but Rihanna is if she's not already a billionaire, she's approaching it off of commercial products that she has an influence in selling, but they're companies she owns in makeup and lingerie. Drake has, you know, sponsorships with 
everybody. So I think where this probably changes and where it's like my brand is really valuable, I should control all of it and I need to be a store for people to feel beholden to is because they are literally selling products and their, their music production, the producing of music and art in that way is not where it's, it's a part of the pie. It is not where all the money is coming from. So Kevin, I am interested with that framework and you think of, I mean, I can go back and think of these bands though, though black flag, I think has never made any money at all, but you know, when you does, how does this framework of these new style artists versus this old style, where do those come together? Yeah, you know, I think the the criti- the lack of criticality with the new stuff is what caught my attention um, and how it contrasts to uh, um, what Metallica went through in the 90s and early 2000s. They were a thrash metal band and... Um, then when they made their most famous album, their self-titled, um, that was still like that was kind of where they started to, um, you know, what people call sell out. They um, they made their songs shorter, a bit catchier, uh, more radio friendly. But and, and people fight whether it's a, a you know a metal album or a hard rock album. But then what uh, really got people's attention was later in the in the '90s they kind of changed their whole their whole look and sound they went for a more bluesy alternative rock sound which like a lot of fans hated um and still still hate and then they in the early 2000s they said oh now we're gonna kind of maybe a bit of influence with the new metal scene but we're gonna we're gonna scrap the guitar solos and we're gonna do this weird thing with the drums and um and people hated it people a lot of metallica fans like that album way better than the the load and reload albums of the 90s but like people were really pissed that they seemed to have gone away from being this thrash metal band and if i like when i think about artists now like taylor swift changes her genre every album and people embrace it and love it and um and if you were to criticize her for it, you'd say, well, like you are, you like are against her artistic freedom to explore the genres that she wants to, wants to where, whereas like if Metallica's like, we want to do a, you know, a bluesier thing, this album, it was more about like, well, the song sucks. So, and you know, we are going to, we are going to target to get things that we want to target <laughs> and, we are not going to target to get whatever Metallica has on sale. So, yeah, I mean, I just think it's a complete contrast to Taylor Swift, who just had like the biggest tour ever, which was really a tour about how different all of her albums are from each other. Yeah, I I think the point of criticality, and and we're using some big examples. I mean, Metallica. I'm sure was the biggest rock band in the world for some slice of time or, or close to it. Um, but I, I think that point of it's not, it's the, the famous essay, which no one has actually finished, but, but 
pretends to on smarm like there is a there this is beyond that it's not just people saying oh you don't understand how can you be critical it's no you don't understand because you are not part of this community don't come into the store and criticize everything if you do we will chase you out with pitchforks which there have been plenty speaking of pitchfork there have been plenty of pitchfork reviews over the last few years in which responses to them have included vitriol toward the person whose job it is to review albums and sometimes led by the artists and and i think that that i mean the fact that metallica as an example and there are plenty of examples responded and said hey we're going to explore something different is that even if not direct it's a recognition that okay, maybe we missed that. Maybe that didn't turn out how we wanted. If we wanted to impact people, it wasn't the impact we were looking for. But I think now these communities, even though it's out on the internet for everybody, anybody can be a fan. uh, It's not like you have to send off to get a tape sent back to you. They become insular. And I also think of kind of speaking of other essays, uh, was it on Deadspin, the Gamergate essay? And, And really, I mean, really became a a prescient thing on what the future looked like but is this idea now of it's really hard to become a fan of something and be critical because the the gatekeepers will say shame on you you can't be part of our group leave and that's a pretty nice nice thing that they probably wouldn't even say they wouldn't be that nice yeah i mean like the the thing is it's it's a natural and healthy thing to want to branch out and try different things artistically like you know at at the same time metallica had a pretty secure platform from which to do that having already been an extremely famous band that sold a lot of records for a long time before that but there is like there's something to be said for this, like what they're doing is like, they're basically, they're trusting their audience and, and saying, we think you're mature enough to, to handle this. And, you know, I, like that's not all of the different versions of Taylor Swift, sonically speaking, have been ones that I have personally enjoyed, but now, like, you know, being able to see it all come together, you know, through through this sort of era's concept and, and like seeing all of the different steps she hit along the way and all of the different left turns, like it is a thing that's really cool. And so, like, I, I wish I wish more artists felt like they had the leeway to do that now but they they don't because because the the stan army like it's the algorithm it's it's the filter that says we want you to keep doing the thing that we already know we love we we keep hitting that we're the lab rats and we keep hitting the treat button over and over again yeah, I mean, I, I guess there there are two ways, which is you can have these rabid fans and they say, keep giving us the very same thing. But I think 
Taylor Swift and Drake are instances where they don't keep giving you the very same thing. And that's in part because, as I said to you all, there is a, there is a religious idolification factor to this, which is these fans decide that like whatever is done by our leader, the, this person we are worshipful about. And I, I mean, truly, I don't, you know, I said relationship, but it is a spiritual relationship in some ways. They say whatever whatever they say is true, and we will accept it. Anybody who challenges them, we are their army, and we will we will fight it off. And not, I mean, that feels really scary to me. Um, but also, I get it, and I think that a common thing, and it reminds me of sports in this way, is uh, Taylor Swift is an example, as are basically all of these other artists we've mentioned. Which is, they go back to the wall and say. They don't respect. They don't respect my work. They they think it's vapid pop. It, they they don't understand us and everything else. And it, it feels like it feels like Michigan football. It's like no one's actually disrespecting you. You're like you're putting up bulletin board material to your team, to the people you coach, and you're like, ah, we gotta we gotta protect protect our our livelihood. And it's like everything's fine. Like just enjoy. Like that's it. it it's like you can just enjoy this. It doesn't have to to go back to this identity, it doesn't have to be a statement. It doesn't have to be something that you you push in other people's faces and feel like is disrespectful if they don't agree with you. Like, yeah, I like I like Ockerville River, but um, you know, maybe I'm not such a big fan of of all the stars albums. That's fine. Like, that is fine. I can have a dialogue about that. It does not have to be an argument. Uh, one day maybe I'll understand what that means. And that's that's okay. That is okay. If I felt like, no, you're wrong for not respecting, you know, Will Chef to to a great degree, that would be a jerk move. And I think that that's some of the fandom that we're responding to and is like kind of icky. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, yeah, but and- I will... S- oh, go ahead, Kevin. I, I was just going to say in terms of the the algorithm portion of this like another thing that i i feel that comes out and maybe this isn't in the form of you know number of number of projects that an artist undertakes but it it also reinforces the like constantly constantly giving the treats back to the fans and like you know overflowing them with things to consume so that they have like less time to explore other artists or, or other things, whether that's oh, YouTube totally. channels or podcasts or, or yeah, I mean like artists. a thing, a thing that you never heard in like 2002 or 1996 was an artist, like a musical artist saying our competition is watching movies we're like that's who we're competing for your time with but now like go, just go go sit in any sort of executive meeting at a news organization and i will tell you they think their competition is every other thing you could be spending every millisecond of your time on and it's totally unhealthy it's completely insane and yet this is just like how how it goes everyone everyone feels like they get a chance to grab just this tiny portion of your attention and so they have to grab it and hold on to it as tight as they can 
and I don't know. You just you don't you don't have to appeal to everyone. I yeah. I don't have to know what Pierce's Aquaville re- uh, River and Stars reference means. Oh, I mean those are those are two those are two bands. I, I was I mean, struggling I, to I think. Figured. of I was struggling to thinking of of things that like that like people who are fans of one would know the other and they'd be like, yeah, I don't really like them. And you'd be like, okay, have a, have a good evening at the wine bar you're going to. Um, but, uh, I want to, I want to point out some, cause we, we focused on it. I noticed mostly, uh, non-white bands and stuff. I do want to say, uh, the same could be said about, I think a lot of, traditionally male country artists the last few years sean and i listened i know we both listened to a lovely podcast this year this year about uh morgan whalen just getting sick in oxford mississippi and and bailing on a show for is that who it was what there's there was there's a country art Uh, oh voice right yeah that's right lost his voice yeah yeah i've got i've got stocks I, yeah, which he got know, beat up by somebody for using the N word again, probably. Yeah, but punched it, him in his throat. Yeah, it, this is throat this rip. is not unique just to pop music, and I would say that like there's plenty of this out there where there's a content stream and and a brand stream, and it's like oh we we're trying to tiptoe around it and not be critical of like this music might not be good and this person might be a mess and and maybe we should we should all chill. Yes, Max. It sounds like there's an issue or perceived issue with just mainstream media and content. Well, it's and... it's uh, co- content is part of it. It's like it's a commoditization thing. Like not everything uh, an LLC is not the proper structure for all things. I, I guess what I'm getting at is like I, I don't know if we're at the point of a resolution, but I found a lot more enjoyment recently in going to like a, you know small local venue and just discovering more local bands that don't have this kind of push like there there's still lots of I, 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 it doesn't seem yeah. to be all doom and gloom like there's no more art these days it's like no, no. it's just the most popular artists are actually corporations <laughs> like that, i think that's that, yes, really that's... what you're getting at where it's like there's still plenty of art you just have to go a layer down maybe uh, Max, corporations correct. are people, so what you said is really offensive because you're being very <laughs> exclusive it. of people. Um, the, well, the the truth is, a lot of the places that that support that type of art have closed, and and are you know, I, I think of all the venues that closed in DC during the pandemic, so that's hard. And I mean, I think of I think of uh, one of my favorite bands, Thin Lips, uh, the lead of of that band, who I did see this summer playing for another band is a carpenter and like leaned yeah. into that work. Good for them. And I mean, it's, it is hard to keep a small venue open when you're competing with Netflix and the New York times, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Well, New York times, which is Facebook as we've all learned, but all, but uh, no, uh, Max is right. There is, there's something to be said for, and, and this was, this was the sort of the focus of that Ezra Klein show episode. It was like finding, a sense of style and a sense of taste, which is, is it is rooted entirely in, you know, they use the they use the sort of framing of we live now in the era of the push internet, where algorithmic engines 
push things out to you and it is increasingly homogenized versus a, a prior time like sort of the era of the blogs where it was the pull internet and you had to do a little bit of work to sort mm. of find things that you cared about and curate your own web experience in a way that is really fucking hard to do now. I know because I've tried and I, I am trying to do it, but that effort is still really worthwhile. And, you know, it's, it is tough because the venues are, are hard to keep open, but there's, you know, there are NPR affiliates. There are, I mean, there are frankly, uh, I mean, Pitchfork is part of Condé Nast, so they don't really count so much, but like <laughs> there are still independent music sites uh that that you can you can sort of you know luck into to new discoveries from um there are college radio stations you know many of which are like npr affiliates and, and stuff like that um i haven't gone i haven't i mean i haven't gone on dat piff or two dope boys in years but like yeah there were places to get free music and discover that way so I mean, a lot of this is good and we are freed from some of the reins of the record companies, but I don't know that it's better. It's just different. And to that point, I think having the leg up via a record company that's like, hey, go make go make art is still can be a necessary evil to get to that eventual brand status that maybe you're after. So it's different. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know that it's better or, or worse, this this framework. Um, sure. It feels it feels the mood feels worse, and not in the there's no good art anymore way. It's just like you have to choose wisely which army you're going to be a part of. Feels but like yeah, go ahead, Max. It's the same conclusion we've come to on multiple podcasts now, which is that the easy way is to is to be lazy and sit back and let the information and the content flow to you. Um, yeah. But there's still a lot of good stuff out there. You just have to do some work to find it, I guess. Well, and and this is what I wrote down at the very beginning. Um, and Sean will know that it is a lyric and I think a song and also the name of a book. Um, it is, Our Band Could Be Your Life. And what I'd say is, we're here now. How's that going? Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't think the Minutemen were imagining this. No, probably like very much the opposite. Yeah. Um, God. All right. Well, that's a bit of a depressing note to end on, but that's. I think that's kind of perfect for for this. Like, it just it doesn't feel as fun anymore. Yeah, Max. Yeah, I. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Also, I said there's good stuff out there. Like, that's not to say that that some mainstream stuff isn't isn't good too like i don't know that for sure most of it's yes. not problematic it's more just like you know if you're gonna let a super mainstream artist totally define you you should still see who else is doing similar stuff because maybe you'll find someone that uh could use a buck a little a little more um that's also doing something really cool yeah yeah and that was one of the things that's a much i like that much more as a place to leave it that was a thing that that the that ezra klein and kyle chick were talking about is like finding not just finding things that you like but then branching out further you know seeking out interviews with those people and and hearing you know kind of finding the people that 
influence them or the people that they appreciate and are motivating them to do good work now and like seeking those artists out. So like there is, if you are willing to put in a little elbow grease, there are rewards there for you. So that that's, we should end on the optimism note, I think, not the pessimism note. Good idea. <clears throat> okay. It is time to transition from optimism back to pessimism now uh, and, and, and do Pierce's sorry. So imagine that you are, you are going to a Tex-Mex type restaurant with a friend on a Saturday in early January. You're offering to get something to share. Imagine your Tex-Mex place. They have, they have some options for chips and dip items. Which, which item, and I think it's important to note that, that uh, it is cold, it is cold out, um, which of the typical chips and dips options would you get if you were at a Tex-Mex restaurant on a, a Saturday with a friend? Salsa? Yeah. Maybe, maybe the guac? One of those well, I mean, two. I mean, if it's cold, I'd maybe go queso, but I, I have to see if the other person like was into it, and they probably wouldn't be. So, yeah, I love guac's my favorite thing ever. So. Guac, yeah. Yeah, so, so here that you're right. It was the obvious choice, but I am sorry for choosing it for a few reasons. One, it was cold and I had to sit partially outside. Two, the queso at this place is very good. Three, I chose the guac and knew this going in, but did not expect. And I live in Atlanta, Georgia, which which is, you know, prices and everything. It's it's on par with everybody else. They listed this, and I didn't think anything of it. Market price, okay? So you get you get out there, you get. A, I looked at my bill. I was like, okay, that's strange. Um, and I get like it was a fine amount of guac, but like I conceivably wasn't going to eat all of it. And there are only so many chips, and there's the kind of this disagreement in terms of that. It's ten dollars. It's ten dollars, and I left like. Three fifty in the bowl, and I'm usually not like someone who cares about prices. It's like I should have gotten the queso. It's warm. It's very good, and the guac is fine. And I'm outside, and I'm cold. I don't need cold mush. How many avocados so, do you think were in the? Three quarters of one. Like, <laughs> and like it was a fine amount of guac, but like I should have gotten queso. And you know, I don't know. It. I didn't even think about it till afterwards. I saw queso at the table over. And I just felt stupid. I'm sure. I mean, maybe it was still like 750 or something, but I would have felt better uh, physically and then psychologically from a, a from a price perspective. So, hey, if it's cold outside and you're at a Tex-Mex place, get queso. And even if it's not, probably still get queso. Or just don't get the market price guac. I don't know. I mean, this is I, we live in strange times where where guacamole and uh, chicken wings are both market price. I was somewhere recently. I wish I could remember where it was. Where it was a restaurant, and I shit you not, like eighty percent of the menu, the prices just said MP market price. I was like, what? <laughs> I, I should just like like ask the waiter, like, look, you can either just tell me the price of these, or you can get me the menu with all the prices yeah, listed like... on them. <laughs> Well, Max was probably already like, hey, do you have a paper menu? I don't really do the QR code thing. That's right. Um, which, 
they're like, oh, they probably would have said, well, we can get you the 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 like of the moment price. We have to use a QR code because it's tied to like it's dynamic our pricing. stock price. Yeah, it's dynamic pricing. <laughs> Down to the minute dynamic pricing on oysters. We shouldn't not. We shouldn't give that. We actually shouldn't give that that away for free. That I, I actually could see that like working in a really devilish but like good way. It's like. Oh no, our happy hour adjusts dynamically. And so it's like if people aren't buying this, then we'll make it a happy hour until we get to a threshold and then it plateaus out. So it's like if you get in, you can get nuggets for really cheap until everybody starts buying them and then we we jack up the price. Yeah. There's bars that do that. Yeah, the stock market bars. Oh god. <laughs> get some pretty cheap beers. Horrifying. Don't hate the player, hate the game. I hate the fucking game. <laughs> I despise it. Um, but what I don't despise, uh, what is what is this week's big idea from pop culture, uh, I'm going to ask a question of the only person on here who I think might know the answer. Pierce, do you remember the last time Waxahachie released new music? Uh, in 2020... I th- or, wait no uh so there was there was like an ep that was just under katie crutchfield's name but i believe uh saint cloud came out in 2020 i thought it was even earlier than that i thought it was like the tail end of 2019 but you might be right uh well there's new music coming uh she's announced an album called tiger's blood uh which is a reference to snowball flavors and mixing all the red ones, which is awesome. Um, and there is a first single from that album called uh, Right Back to It, which is like a duet with, uh, with this guy, MJ Lenderman, who is an Asheville musician. He's uh, he does he has a solo band and he is part of the group Wednesday, who I will be seeing five days from now here in Richmond. Uh, and it's, it's a beautiful song. There's like awesome vocal harmonies. There's some kind of light banjo work and a, a lilting guitar solo. Uh, and there was a time when that was not the Waxahachie sound that I was looking for. I liked the more kind of indie rock tinged version uh but but no this is this is really welcome and if this is what uh much or all of tiger's blood is gonna sound like i'm really excited about it so yeah i feel like i feel like max you would enjoy it because i think (laughs) you probably had a good amount of lucinda williams played in your house growing up and i think that there might be some nice overlap here and that's one of like katie crutchfield's like biggest uh She's a really big fan. Also, uh, St. Cloud did come out March 27th, 2020. Okay. I don't know. I feel um, like you're pushing music on me. I really prefer to pull Oh, music. my Boo. God. Sounds very Boo. mainstream. The Wax Detachi or whatever. Ooh, <laughs> this Waxahachie Wax River? That's a river, right? Waxahachie. Uh, yeah. Yeah, some sort of river or creek or something in Alabama. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Kevin, Trivia Master, what do you have to close us out this week? 
All right, so uh, it is it is week two. Um, our scores going in to this week are uh, Max with 75, Pierce with 67, and Sean with zero. So everyone yes. missed last week. So try to get everyone uh, back in some positive ground to make the wagering more interesting. Um, we've got 21st century presidential elections. Oh, I think I might be okay. There haven't been that many of those. Well, U.S. So, elections. Um, well, luckily for you, this one is about the U.S. So this was the Sick. I need. That's where I. I live. need the. I need the first U.S. election, presidential election since 1952, in which neither the incumbent president nor the incumbent vice president was a candidate. All right, so we will start with Sean, who's currently uh, in last place. What do you All got? right. Well, by basic process of elimination. Bush beat Clinton's vice president in 2000. Bush was an incumbent president Allegedly. in 2004. Uh, so it's got to be, since Dick Cheney did not run for president, 2008. That is correct. 2008. 100 Obama points. versus McCain. Woo. We got uh, Biden and Palin in the, uh, the vice roles, so... Um, all right, so Pierce, did you come up with that answer as well? And what did you wager? I, I did, and I wagered 50 points. All right, Max? I likewise came up with 2008. I wagered 25 points. All right, so cool. Everyone got it? Um, Hooray. Max and, Max and Sean at 100 apiece. Pierce will <laughs> take into the lead with his slightly uh, more aggressive wagering than Max. So <laughs> I didn't know it was US presidential elections. Oh, sorry. I figured if there was a, po- a politics question that I knew the answer to that it might be uh it might be pretty good. <laughs> but fair enough. It's all good. All right. Uh, that is the end of the show. You can find us at our home on the web at www.prettyokpod.com. You can also subscribe to the show feed on your podcast app of choice. We'll be back next week to talk about something else. Until then, I'm Sean. I'm Pierce. I'm Max. I'm Kevin. Thanks for listening. Bye. Sun sets on the broad square and lights come up. Feel like this town's gonna put a quick end to me. But if I came here to drown... I'm going to take a few people down. This is the church occupied by the enemy.